I'd now like to welcome uh, A.V. Adore to read today's scripture, uh, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. Today's passage comes from Luke 24, verses 1 through 12 and 52 through 53. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men by them in dazzling apparel and were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning to the tomb, they all told these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and mother of the and Mary, the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to be in, to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. They worshipped. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, why would someone be a Christian? Uh, if you count yourself to be one today, why? Uh, if you don't count yourself to be one today, why? Uh, I think uh, that if your answer to that question does not in some way include the resurrection, then likely you have not fully understood the claims of Christianity. Uh, there are a lot of claims and beliefs uh, within the Christian faith, but none of them matter without the resurrection of Jesus. None of them. Now, over the last several weeks, we have uh, been in a series that we're finishing up today that we've called It Is Finished, where we've been looking at the work of Jesus, particularly his life, his death, and of course, today, his resurrection. What we saw is that in his life, we considered that his perfect life is more than just something for us to emulate, but rather his perfect life is what allows us to be accepted by God for his righteousness is given to us. His perfect performance record is given to us, which then justifies us uh, before God. Uh, and then we are graciously, as a result, welcomed into his kingdom with all the rights and privileges that are rightly Jesus's. They're also now ours as we trust in him. Uh, and then last week we looked at Jesus's death and we considered that the cross is the way in which our sickness and our and sickness and death and sin are vanquished. Because the consequence of sin is the chaos and the destruction that exists both in us and of course all around us, all of which leads to death, which Christ took upon himself, taking the consequences of our sin. 
But here's the thing. Now, depending on your vantage point, those beliefs very well could be unbelievable to you. They could be strange. In fact, maybe some of those beliefs are the reasons why you do or you do not believe in Christianity. And though they are the core, central beliefs uh, of Christianity, why in the world does anyone believe them? I mean, they do sound a bit like ancient people's attempts at making sense of the world and the chaos that they assume existed in the world. But see, there's only one reason why you should believe that any of that is true. It's the resurrection. If it didn't happen, if the resurrection did not happen, none of those beliefs make any sense. We should all just leave now. You can shut your computer screen, log off, uh, and stop worrying about this day. But if the resurrection of Jesus actually did happen, then we have no choice but to embrace and accept the God of the Bible and all of his commands and all of his promises. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he claimed about himself, everything he taught about Scripture, the claims of Scripture, the goal of Scripture, must be deeply considered as a result. And so today, I want to consider two things related to the resurrection. The first thing is I do want to spend some time considering why you should believe that the resurrection happened. But then the second thing that I want to consider is that if it is true then, if the resurrection did happen, what then must we now believe? Okay, so first let's take a look at why you should believe the resurrection happened, and then what we must believe as a result. Uh, the first thing is why should we believe it happened? There's really two approaches that tend to... Um, uh, that you could come to uh, when arguing for the resurrection. Uh, number one, you could look at it historically and then also consider it theologically. And I want to look at both of those things um, a little bit. So historically, you know, there's a variety of, belief, variety of beliefs regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there are some who would say that it's just a legend or it's a myth created by people who wanted to start a new religion. Um, there are uh, some who would say that the resurrection that's described in the Bible actually isn't a literal resurrection that's being described, but rather it referenced some kind of spiritual enlightenment that Jesus' followers would have had. Uh, other world religions claim that Jesus never actually died, but rather it was just uh, an appearance of death, but the true Jesus had left Jesus before the, the physical part of Jesus died, and so there really wasn't an actual death. Of Jesus, and so as a result, there was no resurrection that needed to take place. The problem is, is that none of these approaches actually take seriously the historic accounts of the resurrection, historic accounts that do exist. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to say about historical records. First, it's important just to know that we need to start with the fact that most scholars do affirm that a man named Jesus really did exist. I mean, even those who would not see themselves as Christians would affirm this to be true, that there was some man named Jesus that existed at some point. Even non-Christian ancient historians, such as uh, men like Josephus, would have acknowledged and written about Jesus on several occasions. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that the, uh, the question then, of course, is how do we go about not just determining whether or not Jesus existed, but rather that Jesus is who Christians say that he is. Uh, and of course, did he actually die and rise again? That's the question at hand. Now, 
fair enough to say that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are admittedly the primary texts for Christians uh, who are looking for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so what we need to do is we need to look at these historical books and consider whether or not they can actually be trusted. Now, I can't possibly spend um, as much time as would be necessary to um, show this all to you, but it is worth noting that even non-Christian scholars of the Bible acknowledge that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially Mark, were all written quite early after the life of Jesus. Uh, and that these accounts were from the lifetime of those who would have been present for Jesus. Now, there's far more to say about that, but the most important thing that I want to say is that if any Christian writing is to be reliable, it needs to be uh, a, it needs to be writing that was at minimum done quite early. We cannot trust documents that do not have original source material in them. I mean, this is how we handle historic records. Primary source material is vital for understanding what happened in the past. And the Gospels can and should be trusted as primary original source material. And I want to briefly give you a few arguments as to why. And I want to look at Luke 24 as a bit of a test study for why we can trust the gospel accounts. And I'll be referencing uh, passages or verses that are in the passage that we just uh, heard read. I'll also be referencing a couple other verses in Luke 24 that aren't there. Um, I saved us from reading the entire chapter. Uh, but let's take a look at a few things. So Richard Bauckham, uh, who is uh, who spe his, uh, a historian who specializes in ancient literature, uh, a number of years ago now, he wrote a book, a groundbreaking book, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, and in the book, he essentially makes the argument that the Gospels are historical, trustworthy historical narratives. Uh, it's kind of a big, fat book with tons of argumentation. It's pretty exhaustive. Uh, but there are a few central arguments that he makes that I want to ensure that are in front of us when we consider whether or not we should trust the gospel. Uh, and one of the arguments that he attempted, uh, or most, many of the arguments, what he's attempting to undermine throughout the entire book is the argument that the gospels are written like some kind of ancient fiction or fantasy or myth. That they, they, these, um, that these, those genres of fantasy or fiction, they were written in ancient times in a very specific kind of way and the Gospels do not have the characteristics of ancient myths or ancient le legends, but rather the Gospels were written uh, with the markings of an ancient historical account. And there's a few things that he does uh, to show that to be ca the case. Now, uh, for those of you that have been part of our Studying the Bible class, um, which, by the way, if you're still interested, you can uh, still sign up for that. You're more than welcome to join us. Uh, you can do that on the website. Uh, we have been hammering home this point, we will continue to hammer home this point in our, uh, in our class, is that as modern readers, we cannot import our contemporary sensibilities into ancient literature. But rather, we must read authors in, of ancient times in the way that they intended to be read. And if the Gospels were being, uh, if the Gospels were being read to convince us of something, especially if it didn't happen, they would have written them very differently. Let me give you a few examples uh, of what I mean, the, some of the examples that Bauckham draws on, each of which I think provides a stronger and stronger case for why we should be able to trust the resurrection accounts. 
Right, the first thing is this, and we see this in our passage. In verses 1 through 12, we see the presence of women in a very unique way. The first witnesses here of the resurrection of Jesus are women. And to put more a uh, fine point on it, the first people to, pro to proclaim the resurrection are women. Now, it's important to note that women in this day, they had a very low status. So much so that uh, even their testimony was not admissible in evidence uh, in court, either in the Roman courts or in the Jew Jewish courts. Uh, at this time, no one attempting to deceive others or to make up a story would have put women as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. It would have completely undermined the credibility of the whole account for people of that day. The only motivation that one might have for putting women at the center of this story is if it actually happened. Now, also as a side note, this is a bit tangential, but it's important just to know that Christianity introduced a whole new way of relating to those who had often been marginalized. Uh, the Gospel of Luke and, um, and the Book of Acts in particular upend all ancient structures of patriarchy. I mean, women and the poor and immigrants, they were all viewed with much higher regard than they would have in most other places during this ancient culture, worth noting. Uh, the second thing that Bauckham points out is the style of the narrative. He points out that the Gospels, including Luke 24, they are written like eyewitness accounts. They are not written like legends or myths. The difference was, for Bauckham, is that legends would have often been written from the viewpoint of this omniscient narrator who knows and sees all. Uh, and this omniscient narrator sees the whole story and then tries to tell you what happens. But the Gospel accounts are not at all like that as the narrative is almost entirely limited by those who are actually telling the story. Uh, probably a good example of this, just to give um, uh, a little bit of context. Verse 18, which again, I didn't print there. There's this man named Cleopas that comes in contact with the risen Christ. Now, who is Cleopas? I mean, we, we don't know. We don't know who this guy is. He's not important, and no one else ever speaks of him. Uh, and then, on top of that, um, by the tomb, um, with Luke, he's careful to explain, if you notice, he explains who was there. And he says that Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, were there. Now, that's important because who is Joanna? And why does she get a prominent place here in the passage? Well, Bauckham says that in ancient times, naming people like this was their version of footnotes for ancient historical accounts. It was like they were saying, listen, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, go ask these people. Go talk to them and hear what they have to say. And it's important to note that legends and myths, they were not written in this way. In fact, many other sacred texts amongst many other religions are often based on a single person's revelation, a revelation that cannot be verified with other people. The Gospels, however, are constantly pointing people to go ask these people. They were there. They experienced this. It was their version of trust note, or footnotes. Plus, some also claim that we cannot trust the Bible 
or, or the Gospels, rather, uh, because as you read through these different narratives, sometimes uh, you'll notice little differences in the way the story is told. Now, the first thing I would say is that those narratives are, or those uh, uh, differences are almost always inconsequential to the main thing that's being said. But if these were being written through the lens of eyewitness accounts, then it would make complete sense that each of the story is being told slightly differently. I mean, we can all experience the exact same thing and still describe it differently. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It only means that we noticed different things in the experience. And it's fair to say, I think, that if the Gospels perfectly lined up in every single way, that that would actually be suspicious. Because I think that would end up indicating some kind of collusion. And so the, the way the style of the narrative is laid out actually gives proof that we should trust what's being described. The last thing I would say is this. This is the third and last one. This is probably the most compelling one for me. Is look at verse uh, 52, which we had, uh, we had there in front of you. It says that they worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. Now understand this, that ancient Jewish people were the last people on the planet who would be open to worshipping a human as God. Their paradigm and their worldview absolutely would not allow it. They would not even say the name of God, and even today that is the case for many of our Jewish neighbors. And yet what we see is they immediately started worshipping Jesus. Why is that? Well, it's because there was a massive paradigm-shifting event that blew away their categories. And what was that massive paradigm-shifting event? Of course, it was that they saw a resurrected Jesus. They had seen him die, and now he has resurrected. So historically, there is actually great evidence that the resurrection of Jesus is not some myth, it's not some legend, but rather the gospel accounts are trustworthy historical documents about the resurrection of Jesus, and at minimum, they're worthy of our consideration. And in the same way, it is a category-shifting event for the followers of Jesus back then, so should it also be one for us today. Okay, so, with all that said, if the resurrection did occur, what then does the Bible say that we must consider if it has actually happened. What must we now believe? There's two things that I want us to walk away with today believing as a result of the resurrection. Number one, that Jesus and his promises are true. I'm sorry, that Jesus and his word are true. And then second, that Jesus and his promises are assured. So one, that Jesus and his word are true. And two, that Jesus and his promises are assured. First, that Jesus and his word are true. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, then all the assumptions that we've been considering over the last several weeks are true. Things like the fact that you and I, we are distant and far from God and without hope of returning because of our rebellion against him. But that God in his mercy and his grace sends us his son to come after us, to pursue us, bringing us back to himself. And through the perfect life of Jesus, 
who gives us our, uh, that perfection. That perfection alone makes us a child of God who is then welcomed into his eternal kingdom. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, we have to believe that that's the case. And as we considered last week, our transgression, our iniquities, our wanderings, our sin are so severe that the consequence of sin, which is sickness and death, both physical and spiritual, had to be dealt with on the cross by Christ as he took the punishment of our sin upon himself. If Jesus rose from the dead, we have to believe that that's true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then his words in, from John 14, the fact that he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me. If Jesus rose from the dead, that is not nonsense. That is truth. That it's only through Jesus that we have this relationship with God. If he did not raise from the dead, all of that is nonsense. Who cares what the Bible has to say? But if he did, then you and I are bound and obligated to turn to him in repentance and faith. If he was raised from the dead, then Jesus and his word are true. But the other thing, the second thing, is that if Jesus did raise from the dead, that his promises are also assured. I mean, what I just described, we need to take seriously. We need to take seriously the problem of sin and what was required in order to deal with the consequences of that sin. However, in some sense, that's looking at the negative side. Right? The cross and the resurrection certainly have to do with sin. But the positive side of that same truth is that because of the resurrection, the promises that come as a result of faith and repentance are also true. Now, in John 11, Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I mean, if Jesus' resurrection happened, that is true for you as you trust in him. I mean, what does that mean? What does it mean that we will never die? I mean, it means what Romans 6 says, that though we will experience death, in Christ we too shall experience new life. It's what 1 Thessalonians 4 says, that the dead in Christ will one day rise. It's what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that death has lost its victory, for Christ has conquered death. It is a victory that is ours as we believe and trust in him. It is what Revelation 19 and 20 say, that one day Christ is going to return, that he will completely defeat the powers of sin and death and all of the enemies of God, so that what we see in Revelation 21 will finally come to pass, where God restores the cosmos, that there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth, not one marked by sin and death, but rather by the presence and the glory of God. And many, I know that when we think about heaven, we often don't have a biblical picture in mind. But from, from the Bible's perspective, we are not some, heaven is not some distant ethereal place, but rather it's described as the complete remaking of this world back to what God had originally intended. We are not some disembodied spirits that will exist ethereally somewhere, but rather restored bodies in a renewed world. And we don't get to this uh, in our series, but the power of Jesus' ascension is that Jesus physically ascends, and he will 
physically return. We worship a physically resurrected Savior to whom we look to compl- for, for complete restoration. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's essentially arguing the same thing I'm arguing here. I'm taking my cues from him. If Christ did not raise from the dead, none of that is true, and none of it matters. But if it is true, hear these words from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is worthless, and so is your faith. But if he did... If he did, all these promises are true. Now, in this time, there's probably no more palpable time in many of our lifetimes where the reminder of resurrection life uh, is more needed than in this time where sin abounds. We are right now being reminded that no matter how hard we try to fight against death or mitigate its effects, we have no power over it in the end. It will take us all. And some might say that believing in an afterlife is some kind of wishful thinking. But if the resurrection happened, if it happened, then to deny an afterlife is just willful ignorance. The resurrection of Jesus proves to us that there is life after death for those that trust in Jesus. And it's a hope that we can cling to on this side where we too will still experience death. And I need you to know, hear this now, that God is pursuing you right now with these great truths that you might put your hope and faith in the Savior Jesus. He has sent his Son to accomplish a work that you could not accomplish, to conquer sin and death for you. He has done all of this out of love for you. And this Easter... I encourage all of us to look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus with new eyes. See not only that Jesus has died for you, but see also that Jesus has resurrected for you and that the same Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead is the Spirit that is alive and working in you as you put your hope and trust in Him. And in response, may that mean we give Him our whole lives. And may these great truths provide us great comfort in the midst of incredibly disorienting times. We're in a season, I have many of you praying with you as we've walked through this season. And I know that some of you have truly discovered what it means to trust in resurrection life right now. And it's been an honor to be with you through that journey. And I would encourage all of you that there is hope that there is joy, that there is rest that exists far beyond a pandemic that seems to be taking over the world. There's hope far beyond it. And we have that hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. If he did rise from the dead, then what other hope could we possibly cling to? And I pray that this resurrection day, you'd cling to that hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for what we have um, celebrated today. We thank you that not only has he lived a life that we couldn't live, that he died a death that we should have died, but that he's been raised from the dead. And as a result, we now have hope that one day we too will see resurrection life.
God, would you point our hearts toward these great truths? Would you encourage us and remind us of these things, even in the midst of these really hard and dark times? And may, as a result, God, we fall more and more in love with our Savior as a result of this dark time. I know that's my prayer, the prayer for myself. I pray that for others as well, that if there is any good that comes from this, may it be that we have learned how to trust you and love you all the more. We ask all this in Jesus' name.